David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them. There were with him about 400 men. David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, Please, let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. He left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all that time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hareth. Now Saul heard that David was discovered. The men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gabeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand, and all his servants were standing about him. Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? That all of you have conspired against me. No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. Then answered Doeg the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul. I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions, and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house. The priests who were at Nob and all of them came to the king. Saul said, Here now, sons of Ahitub. He answered, Here I am, my lord. Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse? in that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him, so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as at this day. And Ahimelech answered the king, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David, who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him? No! Let not the king impute anything to his servant. Or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all of this, much or little. And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also was with David, and they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priest of the Lord. Then the king said to Doeg, you turn and strike the priests. Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests, and he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep, he put to the sword. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. 
With me, you shall be in safe keeping. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Title this morning is Gathering to the Messiah. There's a lot to cover in this chapter. We're going to kind of take a bird's eye view of some of these major themes. Leadership. The righteousness of one and the unrighteousness of the other. But first, let's think back, well, actually a little bit forward in history from what we just read, to President Andrew Jackson. Remember him? When Jackson was elected president, it was very common for, it was actually expected, there weren't that many presidents before him, to throw a party at the White House upon your election day. His party happened that same day at the White House after his swearing-in ceremony and his address to Congress. He returned to the White House to greet politicians and normal everyday citizens. And very quickly, the crowd swelled to 20,000 strong, turning the usually dignified White House into a boisterous mob scene. Some guests stood on furniture in muddy shoes while others rummaged through rooms looking for the president, breaking dishes, crystal, and grinding food into the carpet along the way. White House staff reported the carpet smelled like cheese for months after the party. Sounds like maybe some of our living rooms, right, after kids have certain snacks. In an attempt to draw partygoers out of the buildings, out of the building, servants set up wash tubs full of juice and whiskey on the White House lawn to calm down the 20,000-strong crowd. You can imagine the celebration of those who most likely were very dissatisfied with the way the country was going. The election that Andrew Jackson won was a very heated one. It would have been something very familiar to us in the past decade, even. But you can imagine the hope of a new president who would understand the normal, everyday person and their values. This is what brought Jackson his victory. David, in our passage this morning, is far from his official inauguration or crowning day in Judah. But the way these 400 men gathered around David in our text this morning has far greater significance than any other president or leader that we've seen in modern history. Now, we've seen David struggling in our past few chapters in 1 Samuel. He had to learn to find refuge in the Lord alone. And we even heard that in Psalm 142. There's no place for me. I have nowhere to go. That was his experience in chapter 21 last week. So he had to learn to find refuge in the Lord alone. He had to learn how to find in the Lord's presence everything that he needed to sustain him moment by moment. So he went to the table of the presence and was given the bread of the presence in the sanctuary. He needed to learn how the reminders of God's past deliverance would be essential to his future plans. And so he was given the sword of Goliath. Lastly, he learned that the Lord would continue to deliver him even through unusual ways by his surprising grace. You remember what David did to escape Gath last week, right? Pretended to be absolutely insane. Started drooling all over his beard. And the king of Gath let him go. Well, David is in a new place of leadership today. Leadership is a key theme in the book of 1 Samuel. It's been there from the beginning. We've seen mostly bad leaders, some good ones, Samuel himself. David is on the brink of becoming 
one of the most notable leaders in the Old Testament, one of the most significant figures in Christian history and in Jewish history and in world history. What we see in God's word today matters for us as we are led and as we lead in whatever context we find ourselves. But most importantly, it matters in that we are to follow godly leadership and that we must find that perfect godly leadership in God alone, in our Messiah, Jesus Christ. So let's look at chapter 4. We're going to look at it in the four scenes that are presented here. And we're going to kind of pull out four lessons about leadership, both godly leadership and worldly leadership. My hope this morning is that as you observe David and as you observe Saul, that you'll see some, some prevalent themes that would even kind of go, make you go, you know, that reminds me of somebody I know, either for better or for worse. Now, there's no outline in your bulletin this morning, but... There is hope for technology. There we go. First lesson is coming from these first five verses. Godly leadership welcomes the discontent and declares God's faithfulness. So look at verses one through five with me, if you would, in chapter 22. David departed from there, escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. He became commander over them. And there were about 400 men with him. Now, that last phrase particularly, those who were bitter in soul, literally translates to those who are discontent. And I want to point that out right now so that you have that in your mind. Because... One of the reasons that we attach ourselves to leaders is because of our discontent with wherever we are otherwise. One of the things I mentioned last week was our need to always be reminding ourselves of the past faithfulness of God. And that that was what David learned in holding the sword of Goliath. It wasn't that he now had the ultimate weapon to defeat his enemies, but he had a reminder that God has been faithful, that he has delivered him in the past, and he will continue to deliver him according to his plans. It's important for us as well to store up the, the memories, the stories that we have of God's past deliverance in our lives. What has he done for you lately? What has he done for you in the past year, in the past decade? If, even if nothing else comes to mind, you might very well find satisfaction and contentment in recognizing that right now, Colossians tells us, he holds everything together by the word of his power. Why is it that the billions of molecules that make up your body right now are working and functioning at least close to how they should? It's because God is upholding you. Right now, that breath is from him. But we ought to be able to point back to things that have happened in our past to say, God has never let me down. He has always been faithful. David learned that the Lord would continue to surprise him with his deliverance and that he needed to remind himself of that truth regularly. Again, even as David, I mean, wouldn't you just love to be his traveling buddy? And David goes... I'm going to pretend to be crazy, and that's going to get us out of this thing. <laughs> the Lord surprises us how his grace delivers us. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a prominent Welch preacher of the last century, and he preached a very famous sermon series on spiritual depression. I would commend that to you for further reading. 
But perhaps one of the most important things he said in that message was this question to his congregation. Have you realized that most of your, bless you, most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Now, let me just say, again, as, as we do sometimes with people like C.S. Lewis, who, did you just say that because you wanted to sound smart and make us feel like we just don't get it? Um, Lloyd-Jones was a doctor before he became a preacher, so he, he's doubly intelligent, right? His point in this, in saying that our unhappiness in life is mostly due to the fact that we're listening to ourselves instead of talking to ourselves, revolves around the fact that we're listening to all of our complaints, aren't we? Complaints come easy. Our discontentments that we experience day by day are so accessible in our minds. It is not hard for us. If I said at the end, when we typically do our time of group prayer, if I said, what I'd like you to do is get into a little group and talk about all the things that you're discontent with in this world. Some of you would get up and leave right away, I'm sure. Some of us might also be like, this is exactly what I've been waiting for, right? I would love to air my grievances right now. That's because we spend so much of our time listening to ourselves instead of talking to ourselves. We need to testify to ourselves of what is true. It's not to say that we need to ignore our feelings. God has given us feelings and emotions, but they have to have their right place behind truth. We need to ask ourselves, has the Lord been there with me before? Won't he be here with me now? Has he ever truly let me down? I love it when in the Psalms we see David say things like, why are you cast down, O my soul? That's talking to yourself, not listening to yourself. It's you taking the active role. If you are able to sit by yourself and just be left alone with your thoughts, all you're going to be doing is listening. You start talking. So the doctor has some good words for us in this passage. But perhaps not as good as what David says. In verse 2, the author tells us that everyone who was in distress, in debt, bitter in soul, or discontent gathered to him, and he became commander over them. Do you see yourself in this list? Is there distress in your life? Do you have debt? Maybe not just financial, but maybe there's something that you owe that you know you could ever pay back. Are you bitter in soul? Are you discontent? Have you found maybe even in the last 24 hours moments where you said, this isn't right and I'm tired of it being this way? Ready for something to change, O oh Lord? And I'll be waiting until you do it. There's different kinds of waiting we could get into, but let's think about where we fall in this list in verse 2. It kind of covers all the categories if we just take this word discontent. There's something about our lives that we are unhappy with that is not how it should be. Those who gathered to David were living under Saul's worldly leadership, and it had dissatisfied them. They're looking for something other than what the world has to offer. Can the Lord do something for me? Will he do something for me? What will it cost for me to have something good from God? It's in this cave of a dulum, this, let's, let's presume and build a picture in our mind of a stinky, wet, cold, dark cave. It is there that the Messiah is found by these wanderers. 
David found himself hiding out and finding a surprising thing happen. He had something incredible to offer to the people who were in deepest need. And they gathered to him, not caring whether they were in a dark cave or sitting on the royal throne. Now, among those people, we first get this mention of his family. Okay, so let's address that for a moment. So his parents and even his brothers, you remember in chapter 17, one of his brothers particularly said, I know the evil of your heart. You're just here to watch all the battle. You're just here to get entertained. I know that there's nothing righteous about you whatsoever. Now this brother is probably coming to him and saying, hey, David, how you doing? You're my favorite, my, my favorite brother, right? right? I, we're just a little bit nervous about this whole Saul stuff right now. And uh, boy, we'd sure love to know we have a safe place to go. Well, it's interesting in verse 3, that he goes to Moab and asks for his father and mother to find a safe place. He doesn't protect his brothers there. <laughs> He's like, yeah, well, you can stick around with me. But it's interesting that in verse 3, David says to the king of Moab, a foreign king, to please take care of my father and mother until I know what God will do for me. Now, we might read that and be like, boy, I've been there. I've been wondering what God's going to do for me. But that's not the tone of what David's saying here. He's not saying, I'm wringing my hands and I'm just, I'm really upset trying to figure out what God's going to do. He's saying, right now, I don't know what God's going to do. But I know he's going to do something. I'm trusting him. And I'm waiting in a trusting kind of way, not in a fearful way. Why? Because he has learned how to rely on the past faithfulness of God for his future deliverance. He has learned to spend time in the presence of God for his daily nourishment and for all he needs moment by moment. And he has learned to expect his surprising grace. And here's another one. Moab will be the refuge for David's family. Now, this is kind of a cool thing because in one sense, you know, David could come in and say, hey, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And we both don't like Saul right now. I'm not trying to take his throne or anything, but I know he's coming after me. Could you help me out? But on the other hand, there's another cool little note in here that David's great-grandmother is a Moabite or was a Moabite. Do you remember her name? It was Ruth. She gets her own book in the Bible. It's a fantastic book. Read it a couple years ago and preached through it. But that's neither here nor there. It's just kind of like a fun cameo. The important thing was that what he said to the king was a confirmation that David was no longer discontent, at least not in the way he was in the last chapter. Something has changed, and he's ready to wait in contentment for what the Lord will do for him. And that's what's drawing people to him. See, he didn't go out saying, hey, I figured out the key to contentment. I'm going to go find all the discontent and those who are distressed and those who are in debt. And I'm going to... No, they actually gathered to him somehow, apparently by word of mouth or something. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like posted all over Facebook. Hey, David is in the king of Adullam if you want to go, or is the cave of Adullam if you want. He became the king of the cave, right? Um... It wasn't broadcasted for everyone to hear. It would have been by word of mouth. It would have been by a friend sitting at the table with another and saying, you know, I've heard that David is hiding out in this cave. Why don't we go see what's going on there? He's kind of the hero of Israel. What is the Lord doing with him? David says, you know what? I don't know what the Lord's doing with me, but I know he is doing something. And maybe that's where you need to find yourself this morning. I don't know what God's doing with me, but I know he's doing something. I know from the testimony of Scripture that God never sits up in heaven and goes, hey, Nick, just, you're going to just give me a minute. You've really messed things up here, by the way. If you could give me a couple days, I think I could come up with a plan to figure this out for you. No. Not in the least bit. 
the Lord knows what he will do, and he chooses to reveal it in his own timing. But meanwhile, in all of this, we actually do see something that God's doing in David's life, because he has given him his old job back. Not the commander of the bodyguard of Saul, not the court musician, but his first job. What was David's first job, everyone? He was a shepherd. High position, wasn't it, right? It was pretty tough asking David to come and kill a giant when he was already a shepherd. No. no. This was a low position. And yet God has made David a shepherd again because the discontent, the distressed, and those in debt have gathered around him like sheep to a shepherd. This is godly leadership, church. Godly leadership is that which welcomes the discontent and declares God's faithfulness. This is what David is doing in this moment in his life. And it's not that he's an impressive leader, praise God, but it's about who the leader actually points to. What is the message of the leader that you're following? Remember, David was the chosen one of God, the Messiah. And as we say, David was the one chosen after God's own heart. But it wasn't because God saw something as a commentary on David's character, but it was all about God's choosing David, regardless of who he was. And those who gather around David, the chosen one, are likewise chosen by the same God to wait on and trust in his deliverance. Church, our job today is to follow godly leadership, godly leadership that says, don't look to me, but look to Christ Look to him, the true Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, who will deliver us, who has saved us in the past, who will always be faithful to keep his own. If we want to participate in the leadership of our Messiah, we have to find ourselves among the chosen of God. Wow, that sounds really great. What kind of things do I get to experience being chosen by God? Well, I'll point you again to verse 2. Distress, debt, bitterness in soul, discontentment. Do you realize your spiritual poverty this morning apart from Christ and see in him the riches of God poured out by grace? Join the discontent. Lesson number two. The rest of the lessons will go much faster than the first one. Lesson number two is this one. Worldly leadership gathers only those who seem useful and rages when dissatisfied. Godly leadership gathers only those who seem useful and rages when dissatisfied. Saul hears about where David is, but look where Saul is, if you would, at verse 6. Whereas we move from a stinky, wet, dark, cold cave, Saul heard that David was discovered and the men who were with him. He was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height. We pause right there before we get to the spear notion here. I want you to imagine again in your mind's eye this beautiful vista of Gibeah, beautiful hill, beautiful sunrise in the background. And on this hill is a little tree that provides shade. And there's someone you can see sitting under it and you go, what a peaceful picture. What a place I would like to be. What a picture of perhaps contentment that I would like to participate in. But then the camera pans around and zooms in and around. As we get a bigger picture, we see none other than Saul. Teeth clenched in his mouth. Fist wrapped around his spear. Now you remember, his spear, of course, is his symbol of authority. 
It's the symbol that he can use to remind himself, let's face it, it's a binky, everybody. That's what the spear is. You know why I say it's a binky? It's his security. It's what he thinks he needs. Hopefully it's not sticking in his mouth. But the spear is Saul's way of reminding himself, I'm still king, and as long as I have this spear, nobody else is. It's not only a picture of his authority, it's a picture of his deep hatred and fear and insecurity revolving around David. He holds his spear as a reminder to him and everyone around him that he's still the king and that he's willing to do to anyone who would threaten his kingship what he's already done to David multiple times, what he's even done, church, to his own son, Jonathan. Crazy. Jonathan speaks to him. Remember, Nathan preached this a couple weeks ago. Jonathan comes to him and he says, what has David done to you? He's been nothing but faithful. Dad, what's wrong with you? Don't worry about David. And what does Saul do? He throws a spear at his own son. Insanity. In these next two sections, we'll see three different groups that Saul gathers to himself. There are four if you count Doeg the Edomite. But this is part of the contrast here because we're seeing godly leadership and worldly leadership. And with godly leadership, we see people gathering to David. And with worldly leadership, we see the leader gathering followers. Now, not necessarily wrong to gather because Jesus did this, right? We're gonna, my, my big point at the end here is going to be that Jesus went out after us. But he goes out with totally different intention than Saul. Saul is here speaking to his advisors. And do you see who he calls them? He says, listen, sons of Benjamin. What tribe does Saul belong to? Benjamin. Do you see the nepotism? Who are all his advisors? They're all people of his own clan. They're all people of his own household, of his family, of his tribe, of his neighborhood. They're all people that he can say, I know these people won't let me down and they're going to be on my side no matter what. Well, then what does he say to all of them? Listen to me, sons of Benjamin. What did David promise you? He hasn't made you any promises, anything better than I did, and yet you've betrayed me. Do you hear the pity party? Put your binky back in your mouth, Saul. None of you are sorry for me. No one tells me anything. And oddly enough, the response of silence from his advisors is, you're right, we're not sorry for you. We're actually pretty embarrassed by you. You used to be the one, you stood head and shoulders over all of us. You were the one that we would have looked to and said, that is Saul, the king. Now you're an embarrassment. The sons of Benjamin, his own tribe, have turned against him because they have recognized that Saul has turned in on himself. Worldly leadership is self-centered. It only seeks the benefit of those around them to himself. He chooses according to his decisions, not according to the Lord's way of choosing. And even these hand-picked advisors have let Saul down in his own eyes. David wants to kill me. Jonathan's helping him out. And none of that is true. But the fact is that he knows he's losing his grip on the kingdom that he's trying so desperately to hold on to. Now Samuel warned us about this, didn't he? He warned Israel about this. Way back when Israel said, give us a king like what, church? What would the qualifier? Like all the nations, like the world around us. 
I mean, do you even hear your words, Israel, <laughs> right? This is exactly what they asked for, and Samuel said, don't ask for that. But let's remember all the way back to that chapter, chapter 6, 7, that it's so often true that for us in our discontentment, we say, I see the prosperity of everyone else around me, even those that don't know Jesus or live like hell every day and indulge in sin. God, why can't I have what they have? This is Saul. This is worldly leadership. It's built on the indwelling sin of the human heart, and it thrives off of indwelling sin. It gathers those who are useful and discards them when they've lost their usefulness, and that leads us to lesson number three. Unfortunately, we get two bad lessons in a row here. That leads us to lesson number three. That leads us to lesson number three. <laughs> yeah, I kind of I knew this was going to happen at one point. There it is. Worldly leadership unleashes the sin of the wicked for its own ends. This is what he does with Doeg. As Saul is talking to all the servants and he's getting no answer, and he's saying, no one's telling me anything. Somebody tell me something. And Doeg goes, I've got something to tell you. I saw Ahimelech. I saw David. I saw Ahimelech pray for David. I saw him seek the Lord for David. I saw him give him food. He gave him the sword of Goliath. Saul, can you believe that? And then he let him go like nothing happened. Doeg is a dirt bag. That's putting it lightly. Because what he does in this chapter is simply horrendous. But already we see that that little note last week in last week's chapter about Doeg being there while all this was going on, we see that this is going to end very poorly. So Saul calls up all the, the, the house of Ahimelech, of his father Ahitub, and he interrogates them, but he doesn't interrogate them to find out the truth. He interrogates them to indulge his own desires. Because remember, worldly leadership is all about unleashing the sin of others and unleashing the sin of themselves too. Because all that power and that gripping of the spear is being interpreted in the heart of Saul as his right to get whatever he wants. So he asks him the why question, but he has no reason to receive what Ahimelech says in response. None of them ever saw this coming, not Ahimelech or the rest of his family. Ahimelech says, I don't know anything. I don't know a lot or a little. I've helped David in the past. What's the big deal? He's one of your... And then he says the same thing. He hits the Jonathan button. He says, David has been so faithful to you. He's the commander of your bodyguard. Why are you worried about David? I mean, Ahimelech genuinely doesn't get what's going on. And that seals his fate. Saul's servants, though, they're not interested in following Saul's command to kill Ahimelech. But they can't stop Saul's new favorite servant, Doeg. Doeg kills 85 priests in that day. And on top of that, Saul unleashes Doeg on the entire city of Nob. Now, there's no mention of the army joining in here. The last thing we got of the rest of the servants around Saul was that they weren't willing to shed innocent blood. The author seems to be leading us in the direction of understanding that Doeg himself went house to house in Nob, killing man, woman, child, sheep, and oxen. Anything that drew breath, he brought the breath out of it. Worldly leadership unleashes the sin of the wicked for its own ends. Why? So that Saul could say, that will teach them. 
Church, the truth is that all of humanity is bound up by indwelling sin in the human heart. We can see a very easy connection with this story and world events in the past week, can't we? Unless we're free in Christ by godly leadership, we will only follow those who will unleash us to sin in greater ways. Obviously, we're not going to go out and do what Doeg did, but think about our context today. Israel, Palestine, Iran, Hamas, Ukraine, Russia, even our own country. Apart from the transforming work of godly leadership in the good news of Jesus Christ, there is no hope for peace, but only a promise of destruction because sin is unleashed by worldly leadership. The difficult thing is that the discontented human heart is the same across the board. Sure, it can look a lot different in those who desperately hold power and who use it to unleash the sin of other people down to the everyday discontented person who doesn't know Christ. But let's consider ourselves this morning because the root cause of the evil that we see in the world is no different than the root cause of the evil in our own hearts apart from Christ. How easy it is for us to watch the news in horror and in shock and in sadness and how we should go to prayer and say, Lord, stop the evil. And all the, if we're not on guard, if we're not following the lead of our humble shepherd, it will be so easy for us to miss the fact that our hearts would start preaching a different gospel. And that gospel being, at least I'm not a Hamas terrorist. Church, I don't mean to bring you into that category, but the Bible tells us that we are all dead in our trespasses and sins. And yes, that looks radically different in different places. But apart from godly leadership, our discontentment will leave us in rebellion. It will leave us following worldly leadership and indulging and even unleashing sin we never thought we were capable of. It may be that in our weak moments of feeling discontent in our jobs, with our families, our marriages even, or our church life, that we open the door to unleashing our own sin because we are discontent. Of course, we know sin promises but doesn't believe it or deliver, but we don't always believe that. We don't always act on that. Sin ties us up. It takes hostages and ultimately executes them. So the disgust in our heart over what Saul and Doeg are doing is something of what we ought to feel in our own sin as well. The Puritans, and, and particular ones have said this better than I'll quote it right now, but a lot of the Puritan preachers would preach on the fact that as we grow in our godliness and, and growing in holiness before the Lord, we start to realize just how unholy we really are. And that gap between us and a terrorist in the Middle East starts to seem smaller because we're no longer comparing ourselves with the terrorists in the Middle East, but we're comparing ourselves to a holy God. Our sin is a stench in the nostrils of a good and holy God who created things to be good, to be holy, to be pure and right. And when sin is unleashed, it only brings destruction. We are like the characters around David and Saul this morning. We will gather around a Messiah. Who will it be? Lesson number four. 
Godly leadership accepts responsibility and offers deliverance. There's good news in the end of this tragic story. And it may not even seem all that good, but there's one survivor in Nob. It is Abiathar, the last priest. He comes to David with the terrible news of Saul's inquisition. And David responds by admitting some responsibility. He says, I knew on that day. Can you, can you just sit in the discontentment of David's heart there and realizing, I knew on that day I saw Doeg. I knew he was going to tell Saul. Why didn't I do anything about it? Oh, yeah, I mean, again, let's not just read our Bibles too quickly and miss the emotion behind these things. David is looking at this story and saying, I'm somewhat responsible for the death of an entire city. But he doesn't let that stop him. Doesn't let, he doesn't let that stop him from the role of leadership that he's accepted from God. And so he says, I knew on that day Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons in your father's house. But, to verse 23, stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safe keeping. Church, do you not hear a foreshadowing of the heart of Jesus Christ? Stay with me. Do not be afraid. Whoever would even seek to destroy your life, they've sought to destroy mine too. But with me, you will be in safekeeping. David shows us the way to the true Messiah to come, to the one truly godly leader that we can trust in. It's not that we need to push David down to the pit now because he's failed, but we need to recognize that he was only a picture of the one to come, that there was a greater Messiah the one who laid down his life for those whose life was pursued by sin and death. And in the unleashing of our sin because of our discontentment, Christ punishes our sin and removes the punishment from us. He takes the punishment for our sin and he keeps us safe eternally in him. Remember the kinds of people that Jesus Christ led in his earthly ministry. Stinky fisherman, a traitorous tax collector, and even a terrorist, Simon the Zealot. He sat down to eat with prostitutes and outcasts. He asked for a drink from the water bucket of a Samaritan woman who was outcasted from every person and every social structure in her town. But again, Jesus not only received those who were rejected from society, but he pursued them, and so he pursues us this morning. So may we take our discontentment, whatever that might be, it might just be a little mustard seed of discontentment. But just like the mustard seed of faith can grow into a tree greater than all the other trees, our mustard seed of discontentment can grow into terrible things as well. It can cripple us. It can lock us down in discouragement. It can bind us up in fear. Christ calls those who are discontent to himself, to his own safekeeping. And so he calls you, O church. Maybe not on a pretty hill under a tamarisk tree, but in a stinky, wet, dark cave. In the middle of whatever sin our discontentment has led us, that is where our Messiah meets us. So in our discontentment, let us run to Jesus, not to Saul, not to the world. It's full of leaders that are pretending to be shepherds. But there is one good shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep who died for sin and rose to eternal leadership of our hearts so we could live in his deliverance moment by moment. 
to free us from weaponizing and unleashing our discontent through sin. So I ask you this morning, where will the Messiah meet you today? Where will Jesus find you? What is the cave that you're sitting in waiting for him because he is near? Where are you discontented?